We're going now back to the book of Luke. We're in the section where Jesus is being arrested. We take breaks uh, to do topics, and then we come back to the book of Luke. And uh, so we're up to chapter 22, starting with verse 47. I want to entitle this, this message, Living in Peace, Living in God's Peace, because it's really all about learning how, and it's a learning process, learning how to trust God to the point where you relinquish control of your life and of the world over to Him, and then find that peace that passes all understanding. It's not something we do naturally in our fallen world, but it's so absolutely central. Before I start, I would like to pray. Pray with me here. Father, for every person in this auditorium, every person who listen through podcasts, God, I just thank you for every one of them. I was going to hear it through television or whatever means. I pray, Lord God, that you'd use this message as a blessing to them, as a challenge to them and to me. Confront what needs to be confronted, tear down what needs to be torn down, liberate what needs to be liberated, transform what needs to be transformed, encourage what needs to be encouraged. But build your kingdom. Use this message, we pray, to build your kingdom in us and through us. And God, in particular, I want to pray that, Lord, you, by the power of your spirit, would confront our addiction to common sense, our cultural common sense, and free us, free us to truly live in the radical, countercultural transformative beauty of your kingdom that looks like Calvary, the cross. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen. 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 Before I even read the Luke passage, I want to read a, uh, a previous passage from 1 Corinthians. It's about the cross. And just kind of lodge this in your brain and, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of weave this throughout this message. But Paul, in talking about the cross, the message of the cross, which is just basically... God's way of transforming the world and getting his will done on earth as it is in heaven is by dying for the world. That's the message of the cross. And so Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness, idiocy, to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, who are coming under the, 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 the reign of God and, and being transformed by the life of God. All that's involved in the concept of salvation. It's a past, present, and future tense thing. We're being saved. And to all who are being saved, well, you know the cross to be the power of God. What looks like foolishness to the natural mind, you know, or should at least know, is the power of God. And then in verse 27, Paul says, God chose. This was intentional here, folks. He chose the foolish things of the world, things like getting killed, crucified. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God is a God who does surprising stuff. Doesn't uh, flex his omnipotent muscle to get his will done. He uses foolish things and weak things to accomplish his will. And all who are his people, all who are under his kingdom, are to live that way. So it's going to look foolish and it's going to look weak. But in fact, God uses it uh, to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so now let's go to the passage in Luke that we're up to. Here Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He was talking to his disciples and while he was still speaking, a crowd or a mob came up. The man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading this mob. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus is really just going, really? Really? Uh, Judas, knock it off. Uh, don't pretend like this is some kind of a sweet thing you're doing here. When Jesus' followers saw what was going on, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. It's interesting that 
the disciples had the decency to first ask Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to use these swords? Unfortunately, one of them at least did not have the decency to wait for an answer. And we learned from a different gospel that that was Peter. Peter just, it was so obvious. I mean, we do this all the time. Lord, you know, should I do this? But we really know that, of course, he wants us to do this. So we don't really wait for an answer. We operate out of our common sense. If ever there was a justified use of violence, it was here. So Peter, of course, God wants me to do this. So he doesn't wait for an answer. Before Jesus can say anything, Peter lops out the sword, starts swinging it, cuts off a guy's ear. And then Jesus says, no more of this. What's the this? What Peter just did. It's really a statement that is, is just pregnant with meaning. Here's how this usually goes down. Peter, you're going to cut off his ear, then his son's going to cut off uh, your ear, and then your son's going to kill him, and then their grandson's going to kill your grandson, and then your great-great-grandson will kill them, and this vengeance will be going on and on and on, and that's how it's been going from the beginning. Round and round and round we go. Where the blood stops, nobody knows. Jesus says, enough is enough. It stops here. No more of this. In in the Matthew version, he adds, when you live by the sword, you die by the sword. We should have gotten that by now. It stops here. Okay, then the passage goes on. Jesus picked up the guy's ear. The passage goes on. It reads, uh, speaking to the crowd, uh, but then after that it says, uh, the passage moves on. He picks up the guy at the ear and he heals the guy's ear. Next slide. Sebastian, 04, V, yes. Micah, 97, where are we? So, the way the passage goes, I'll just quote it from memory. Jesus picks up the guard's ear and he puts it on there and he heals this guard's ear. Showing thereby that the way you do warfare in the kingdom of God is not by cutting off people's ear, but by healing their ears. And that applies to everything. Uh, we, 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 we go forward by loving our enemies, waging war against the principalities and powers that are always trying to play us off against one another. After that, he said, uh, he said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with clubs and swords? There's mob with all the clubs and swords. Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus is really kind of just pointing out the hypocrisy of this crowd. Really? You guys going to come with clubs and swords in the middle of the night? Do I look like the big, bad, mean Jesus, like I'm a major threat, you got to use all those weapons? If that was the case, then why don't you arrest me in the temple courts? I've been talking there for a week about nonviolence, and you guys know that. So this is a big show, coming as though I'm some kind of a threat, and you know that I'm not. And why are you coming in the middle of the night when darkness reigns? This is your hour. But he's using a kind of a double entendre there. Well, you come at night, but this is the time when darkness, when evil is reigning. And therefore, it is your hour. Now, this passage here, profound passage, has always been used, rightfully so, as sort of a classic verse illustrating the nonviolent teaching of Jesus, the nonviolent ethics of the entire New Testament. Jesus could have called legions of angels. He could have flexed his uh, omnipotent muscle as the Son of God. He could have had his followers fight on his behalf. But instead, though he has all that power available to him, he chooses to die a terrible death. And the reason is because that's what love requires and that's what his Father willed. On behalf of his enemies, and by the way, we all are apart from God's grace regarded as God's enemies. For our sake, he chose to die when he could have just as easily, more easily, won. 
It's the, it's the nonviolent ethic of Jesus, the lifestyle of Jesus. And then amazingly, the New Testament says that that's not only something that Jesus does for us, but it's something he does in us and through us. Which is why the New Testament calls us to live like that, to love like that. It is the most original, beautiful, distinctive, countercultural aspect of the kingdom. To love your enemies rather than retaliate against your enemies. And remember when, when, when Jesus and Paul and others in the New Testament talk about enemies, the first thing that anyone would think of is, are the Romans. Any Jew would think of the Romans. Nationalistic enemies, terrorist enemies, life-threatening enemies, those kind of enemies. And yet Jesus says, love them, serve them, pray for them, and bless them. Do good to them. It's, it's incredible. And that's how we are to live. We're called to live that way. It is, I believe, the quintessential, the supreme sign of the kingdom. The surest evidence that we are coming under the reign of God, which is the point of everything, and that his life is beginning to pour into our life and transform us. The surest sign of that is we're learning how to let go of that self-preservationist instinct and love even our enemies to the point of death. That's why when Jesus was before Pilate, Pilate said, are, you know, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, well, I'm a king, but not of any particular nation. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, my servants would be fighting on my behalf to prevent my arrest. But as you can see, they're not doing that, which proves my kingdom is not of this world. The proof that you belong to a kingdom that's not of this world is that you lay down the sword and you have this love, this universal, unqualified love. All the kingdoms of the world fight out of their own self-interest. All the people in the fallen world, we preserve our self-interest at any cost. We protect our self-interest. We advance our self-interest through violence. But the kingdom of God is not like that. And the distinguishing sign is that we put down the sword and rather love our enemies. And it's not just before Pilate that Jesus says this. It's, per, it's sprinkled throughout the New Testament if we have eyes to see it. We try to censor it a lot of times because it doesn't fit our common sense. But it's there and it's clear. And it's central. So Jesus says things like this in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Well, here's the kingdom teaching. Love your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. The Father who causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You love your enemies... Bless them, do good to them, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The distinguishing mark of a person who's come under the reign of God, the distinguishing mark of someone who considers themselves a child of God, is that you're learning how to love the way God loves. His character is beginning to be reflected in you. His character, his love is reflected in the way the sun shines and the way the rain falls. That's what Jesus is saying here. The sun doesn't choose who it's going to shine on. It just shines. It does what it does. People can put themselves in caves and barricade themselves from the sun if they want, but the sun's going to keep on shining. And the rain just falls on whoever's out there. It doesn't choose who it's going to fall on. That's how God loves. God just, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. He just loves. He doesn't discriminate, pick and choose, rank and file. No, he, he just loves unconditionally and indiscriminately. That is how we are to love. We don't get to pick and choose who we love, who we serve, who we even are willing to die for. No, it's just the characters in us, and so this is what we do. So this passage that we're looking at uh, uh, today is, is a classic illustration. of this. It is the paradigm of Christian living, of kingdom living. And it's not peripheral, it's not marginal, it's not ambiguous. It is as clear as can be, and it's as central as can be. So we talk about this quite a bit around here. 
largely because it's not talked about in most other places, and it needs to be. So we, we hit on this theme quite a bit. Bruxy just last week made this part of his message. What I want to do right now is, is not reiterate or repeat all of that, but I want to take it a, a, a step deeper, raise the ante a little more even, and ask this question. Holy Spirit, help us to be honest with this. Why is it, if this is so clear and so central, and it is, why is it so rarely preached in the churches in America? Why is it so rarely talked about? Why is it so rarely lived? In fact, why is it that to talk this way from a pulpit in America or to, or to write this way in a book, it evokes animosity on the part of a lot of Christians? as I'll share a little bit later on. Why is that when it's so central? This takes us, I think, to the heart of what is off, wrong, and missing in the world, the heart of our rebellion, the, the, the heart of our fallen nature, and, uh, and the heart, therefore, of how the kingdom is, is, is to redeem us. I'll start by sharing a little episode from my childhood. I've shared it before. But it illustrates, I think, uh, the nature of the fall. When I was about six years old, I lived in a family that was full of conflict, full of warfare, uh, just, just uh, a lot of animosity in this family. It was a blended family, and it didn't blend very well. On top of that, I had a stepmother, as I've shared before, who when she would get angry, something would snap, and, and she would get sometimes horrifically abusive. So I'm a little kid in Lansing, Michigan, six years old in this situation, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm scared, and I'm wounded, and I'm hurt, and I'm in pain. I can't do much as a six-year-old to influence my environment, so I'm asking the question, now that I look back on it, what can I control? What can I do about this situation? And in my backyard, and I remember it as though it was yesterday, had a, in Lansing, Michigan, had a creek going through my backyard. I'm out in the backyard with a, a, a box of matches, lighting matches, throwing them in the pond, just sort of an act of rebellion, because I was never supposed to play with matches. Well, I'll show you, and so I'm lighting these matches. And I said to myself, and it was, I, it, I remember it so clear, Mom doesn't like me, so I'm not going to like her. And she'll never hurt me again. I, I, I said that to my she'll never hurt me again. And she didn't. I mean, she beat the crap out of me plenty, but it never hurt. I, I don't remember ever crying, regardless of what happened. I would not give her the dignity of crying. There's times where I'd even defy her to do more. Is that, is that all you got? I, I, it, there was just this resistance there. Now, here's the thing. I don't think I was guilty for what I, the, the decision I made there. I was trying to survive. Who wouldn't try to survive? It's, I, I, I had to work with what I had. But see, I, in, that, in making that decision, I was cutting my emotional nervous system. I was, in a sense, committing emotional suicide. And what was actually going on there, it reflects sin in this world. Because I was acting as though there was no God. You know, in a more ideal world, my parents would have illustrated God's character. That's what parents are supposed to do. Here's what God is like. And I would have known something at the age of six about trusting in God and believing God's going to bring good out of evil and, 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 and entrusting my heart to him. I wouldn't have done what I did if I would have known something about God. But I didn't know that. I felt like I was entirely alone in this world. It's up to me. I'm Lord of my own life. No one's going to look out for me but, but me. And so... With that sort of self-sufficiency, I severed my emotional nervous system. Stop feeling pain. I'm sure some of us can relate to that. You survive. Now, what I didn't know is that when you cut the, 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 the pain nerve, you cut all the nerves. You, you can't compartmentalize the self. 
And so I, to a large degree, anesthetized myself at the age of six. And now looking back on it, for the next 12 years or so, I was rather numb. Nothing phased me. And I didn't know that there was something defective with me because that was my normal. Only as I began to, as Christ began to heal me and I began to, you know, kind of regain my, my full humanity, looking back on it, it was like, wow, I was really numb back there. I didn't know it at the time. But see, every action we do brings about unintended consequences. And one of them was that I numbed myself. I, I had to, I think. It helped me survive. But, I, but the, the, the fact that I did that, it, it really illustrates, I think, some foundational principles about our fallen nature. Uh, I don't feel like I was personally responsible because I was only six, but I was already part of the polluted world environment. It illustrates foundational things. First of all, it illustrates the way in which we have trouble trusting God. In this fallen world, in our fallen natures, we have trouble trusting God. And see, if we get these, these fundamental principles, we'll understand why we find it hard to take seriously Jesus' teaching about loving enemies and not, protecting our, not, 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 not resorting to violence uh, to protect our, our, ourselves and, and our possessions. We have trouble trusting God. You find this illustrated in Genesis 3, which tells the story of the primordial rebellion. God created this world so that we would know him, we would trust his character, he would love on us, he would fill us with life, and then we would imitate that character to one another and to the animal kingdoms and to the earth. That's what the whole plan was all about. God is a good God, we trust in the good God, he fills our life with fullness, and out of the fullness of that, we love one another, we take care of the animals, we take care of the earth. That is the kingdom of God. What happens, however, is that the enemy comes in, this is the serpent in the garden, and uh, it plants a lie in our head, he's still doing it today, a lie about who God is, a lie about his character, so that we don't trust God. We have trouble trusting God as our source of life, and the minute we don't trust God, well now we take matters into our own hands, and you see that in Genesis 3 as well. If I can't trust God for fullness of life, well then I'm I'm on my own. And so Eve now has to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to get life. And so the story goes, and so the story goes. So we have trouble trusting God. And everything hangs on trusting God. This is the linchpin of everything. The kingdom is all about, at the center, putting all of our trust in God. We don't do that. And when we don't do that, here's the second point it illustrates. We take matters into our own hands, just as I did when I was six years old. It is now up to us. We're on our own. To the extent that God is not Lord of our life, we're Lord of our own life. To the extent that we're not surrendering control over to God, we are trying to be in control. That's just the way it works. Now, when we take matters into our own hands, we assume that we're competent to take matters into our own hands. We assume that we have enough wisdom to be lords of our own life, enough wisdom to rule the world, to make the world a better place. That's what that presupposes. The trouble is, is that we aren't competent. We don't have that kind of wisdom. We were never supposed to have that kind of wisdom. That's why the original tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When we rebel against God, what happens, I've called it, uh, we we kick in our omniscience mechanism. Omniscience means all-knowing. And so what I mean by omniscience mechanism is simply that we have this impulse to think that we know way more than we know. That's why we judge people, as though we knew their hearts or knew anything about them. Only God can judge because only God is omniscient. Our brains are very, very small and our perspectives on reality are very, very narrow. But we forget that. We act like we know stuff that we don't know. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the original idolatry. 
All of it is because we're not trusting God, and so we're taking matters into our own hands. We, we kick into some omniscient mechanism. And we try to rule the world on this basis. The thing is that we're not competent on this. We, we know so little. Our brains are so small, and we're fallen. And so we always operate out of our, our, our self-interests, and our judgments are not wise. Among other things, every action we do causes effects, which in turn cause effects, which in turn cause effects. Every action is like a little pebble dropped in the pond that causes ripples throughout time. But because we're finite in our understanding, we can't anticipate all those ripple effects. We're not wise. Only God is. What happens is that when we act on things thinking that we know, there's always unintended consequences, like when I severed my emotional nervous system. You can look at history and you see how that even the best of intentions often bring about fateful negative results because people couldn't anticipate the downside of their decision. A classic illustration of this, one of my best... And one of the, I think the best examples of that is this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians, just love this guy, insightful, godly. He was a pastor theologian in the 30s in Germany when Nazism was coming into power. And he was a pacifist, which means that he took seriously the teaching of Jesus against violence. But as the Nazi movement was coming into power, he felt led to join a resistance movement that was plotting Hitler's assassination. What could possibly be more godly than that? What could be more commonsensical than that? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, joining this movement, he didn't feel like he was doing it because it was just war and Hitler deserved it. And he couldn't justify it on the basis of the New Testament. And I so admire his honesty. He didn't try to. In fact, he said, this is sin. But I feel I'm called to embark on this sin. Like Abraham was called to offer up Isaac. He felt it was what he had to do. And who can't sympathize with that? So they plot Hitler's assassination. They have a bomb that's in a briefcase. It's supposed to go off. It would kill uh, Hitler and a lot of his uh, uh, high-ranking uh, 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 Nazi socialist officers. And through an infiltrator, they get this briefcase, this bomb in this briefcase, planted in this office. Now, his secretary tells this story in the documentary. His personal secretary throughout the war uh, gave this, this testimony in the 50s that um, what had happened was that briefcase was under the table, and when someone sat down next to Hitler, he bumped that, and so he just moved it a few feet over to the right from where it was planted. And because of where it was moved, when the bomb went off, it exploded, and the table was then used as a shield to Hitler. It actually blocked the bomb, and Hitler was completely unscathed. A lot of other people died and were wounded, but Hitler was supernaturally protected, or so he thought. And the secretary testifies how up to that point, Hitler had begun to waver in his commitment to the final solution, which was to exterminate all the Jews. He was beginning to waver because Germany was starting to lose the war and maybe they should give more resources to the war and take it off the concentration camps. But when that bomb went off, it convinced him that God was protecting him. God was on his side. And so he, with renewed divine affirmation vigor, he renewed his commitment to the final solution, which is why, to the very end, even as Berlin was being bombed, they were pouring massive resources into, into the extermination program. Thousands, if not millions of Jews were killed that would otherwise not have been killed if there wasn't for that bomb. And it shows that the best of intentions in this, in this world where we can't possibly look at all the effects that things have. And in this world where there's a, God's not the only spiritual influence in this world, there's also a devil and demons and demonic forces now often, even the best, most commonsensical of intentions backfire. 
And all that is simply to say we are not competent at running our own lives, let alone running the world, which is why it's so important that we put our trust in living life the way God tells us to live life. Nowhere is that more clear than just with the whole use of violence throughout history. Violence has looked like a solution. If, I just, if we just bomb these people, exterminate them, well, then that will solve the problem because they are the problem. Trouble is, whenever you bomb a house, yeah, you took care of your enemy, but you just recruited their kid to be your enemy in the next generation. So they do the same to you. So you do the same to them. And it goes round and round and round and round. And that, in a nutshell, is world history. And we keep on thinking that if we just do it a little harder, a little worse, a little more with bigger bombs, well, then we'll rid the world of evildoers and, and, and uh, everything will be wonderful. And that mantra has been going on throughout history, but we keep on doing it. It's delusion. It's deception. Round, and that's why Jesus says, no more of this. It stops here. So the reason why we t have trouble taking Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching, the New Testament teaching about loving our enemies seriously, is because we have trouble trusting God, which makes us take matters into our own hands, which leads to number three, fear. I did what I did when I was six years old because I was scared. On my own in this world, I'm scared. The reality is, is that in our fallen condition, we're all scared. Because the world does seem out of control. And on some level, we know, on some level, we know, we pretend like it's not so. But on some level, no, we know that we're not competent. We were never meant to run our own lives and to run the world. We're not good lords of the earth. We're not good masters of destiny. We're, we're just little people who are created to, to love God, trust God, and imitate God. And when we try to become world rulers, well, inside, there's, there's a fear that arises because we know that we're just not competent on this. But see, here's what happens. Knowing that we're not competent and having that kind of fear, it just intensifies our omniscience mechanism. It makes us want to believe all the more that, that, that we know what we're doing. I do, I, I know, I'm confident, this will work. Or if we know that we're not competent, we want to find somebody who is. And so someone, sure enough, comes along and says, I have the answer. I will solve our problems. I will protect you against your enemies. And we go, oh yes, please do it, please do it, please do it. And leaders have always known that the best way to control a mass of people is to install fear in them. That's why the leaders are always pushing the fear button. Hey, if you don't vote for me, the world will come to an end. Or America, as you know, will come to an end. Or the bad people are going to win if you don't vote for me. Oh, they don't really care about America, but I do, so vote for me. And people are scared. Okay, I'll, I'll trust you. I'll trust you. Hitler could never do what he did in Nazi Germany if people weren't afraid. He I mean, they, they, propaganda. The Jews are taking over the world. The Jews are going to take away our freedoms. The Jews are communists. The Jews are trying to run the banks. Everyone's all afraid. So Hitler comes. He's confident. and Okay, we'll trust you. Even though we're not really comfortable with all the stuff you're doing, but, man, we do want that security. People surrender over everything when they're afraid enough. And the other thing is that when we have trouble trusting God, Oh, this is, this, this is so important. What happens is this. God tells us, you guys, life here, this little life you have, and all the world history, it's just a nanosecond, a, a fraction of a second of eternity. It, it's just a, a, a little blip. And see, if we believe that, there's going to be a, a, a peace that we have because we realize this is just a little warm-up stage that we're in now. But because we have trouble trusting God, we have this impulse to think that this is everything. This is, this is it. This is the only life we've got. Grab all the gusto you can. And so we take our life and we take our goods and we want to just cling to it because we, there's, we think this is really all there is, here and now. And now we will do anything we need to do to protect it and we'll trust anyone we need to trust to protect it. Way too much is leveraged on this world. 
on our life, on our sacred stuff, right here, right now, because we have trouble trusting that. In fact, this thing goes on forever and ever and ever. And so we put our trust in leaders who will look like they're competent because they'll make us feel secure. Now, here's the thing. Governments. Some are good, some are not good. There's a wide variety in terms of how just they are and how righteous they are. Got that. But all governments from a biblical perspective, Lord, help us to see this, are premised on fear. Follow me on this. In fact, they're premised on a lack of trust in God. When God originally created this world, it wasn't supposed to have human governments. He was supposed to be our king, period. He said have dominion over the the, the animals and the earth, but he never said have dominion over one another. And even the Adam and Eve relationship was to be a helpmate, equal relationship. It wasn't supposed to be a lording over one another thing. That happened because of the fall. Israel, whom God raised up to sort of be a microcosm of of the world, and God wanted to illustrate as much as possible some kingdom principles in Israel, they didn't have a king early on. They weren't supposed to have a king. Because God wanted to be their king and to show the other nations, you trust in earthly kings, but my people just trust in me. And so for a long period of time, even though there's a lot of sin involved and they didn't do it perfectly, but for a long period of time, Israel didn't have a king. And they stood out as a unique nation for that reason. But there came a time when the Israelites grew scared. They were surrounded by all these hostile nations, Assyria, Babylon, and whatever. Samuel, who was the high priest, was kind of this mediator between them and God. He was getting very old, was going to die. And his sons, who were supposed to take over the priesthood, they were rebellious. So the people were saying, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? They were afraid. And so they came to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8. Look look at this passage very carefully, and and, and this is what happens. The Israelites said to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. So appoint a king to lead us. Just like all the other nations have. We want to be like other nations. Oh, they're, they're, they're secure. They can trust in kings and militaries. Why can't we? Whenever the people of God, their aspiration is to look like the world, we're in trouble. And then they said, when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to him, listen to all the people that are, are saying to you. It's not you that they've rejected, Samuel. Don't take this personally. It's not you. They have rejected me. How did they reject God? They didn't go out there and say, God, we reject you. No. But in saying we want a king and a military, they're rejecting God. You trust in earthly kings and earthly militaries when you don't have a trust in God. That's why they are there. When a a people group, the people of God, have their trust in God and lean on God, then there's no need to look for humans in operating out of their own finite fallen wisdom to lead the world. Your trust is in God. That's how it was always supposed to be. Oh, but how this is so alien to us in, in this culture and in our fallen condition. I got an email this last week. In fact, several emails this last week. In fact, I get several emails like this almost every week. Whenever I teach this kind of a message, this is kind of the response I get. Uh, and here's a paraphrase. Uh, this person read my book, The Myth of a Christian Religion, came out a couple of years ago, and I have a chapter in there on the nonviolence of the kingdom. And this person said this, you are so irresponsible, telling people they're supposed to love their enemies, pray for their enemies, do good to their enemies. And by the way, I don't say that. Jesus does. Paul does. I'm just quoting them. Get mad at them. Yeah, this isn't the gospel of Greg Boyd. I'm plagiarizing here, all right? <laughs> but he says, when you go out and teach that, you are irresponsible. Because if, if somebody doesn't take responsibility, if somebody doesn't get practical, if somebody isn't willing to do the dirty work, then the enemies win. The terrorists are going to take over. Do you want to lose your freedom? 
Do you want to lose your ability to preach in, in, in public? Do you want to be thrown into prison? Is that what you want? He's like, yeah, yeah that, that's what I really want. That's my motive here. But see, he's saying you're up there in your ivory tower theology. Oh, it, you know, it's easy for you to say, oh, live in peace and love your enemies, whatever. But, but, but the reality is that there are threatening forces all around and they're going to win unless somebody does something. Now, just look at the assumption here. And this is... I'm not picking on any particular, you know, email, but this is the response I always get whenever this message is preached. It's never a biblical response because it's really hard to argue against it biblically. Dispute me about what Jesus teaches or Paul teaches if you want, but you're not going to win that one. So it comes down to practicality. We've got to be practical. And the, the, that mindset assumes, look at this, it assumes that we can't trust God. It assumes that trusting God is not practical. It assumes that it's all up to us. It assumes that if we don't rise up in violence, then evil is going to win this world. It assumes that Jesus and Paul are just stupid when they tell us to love our enemies. They're at least not practical. Maybe it it applies to grouchy neighbors, but it certainly doesn't apply to the mean, real, and nasty, threatening kind of uh, uh, enemies. When in point of fact, that's exactly what Paul and Jesus are referring to. And I will grant this. If God doesn't exist, this is idiocy. If Jesus is not Lord, this is lunacy. Loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and all that stuff, it is insane. And if it seems that way to you, well, then you're getting it. That's good. Because Paul himself says it's foolishness to the natural mind. You take God out of the equation, Jesus out of the equation, and going to the cross when you could have called legions of angels to fight in your defense is nutso. Nutso. If... God doesn't exist, and if Jesus Christ is not, in fact, Lord. But if he is Lord, and he is, and if there is a God, and there is, then I submit to you that the only thing that, in fact, makes sense is putting your trust in him, putting your confidence in him, living the way God calls us to live. It's the only thing that is practical, because nobody else knows what they're doing. The reality is that we can trust God, we must trust God. It's not all up to us, and we don't need to be living in fear, because the reality is this. Things can look really stupid and insane on Good Friday, but on Easter, they look a whole lot brighter, all right? And we live in a Good Friday world, and we, we wear Good Friday lenses. We see just the first little fraction of a second of reality, but God sees the big picture, and he's the only one who really does, which is why we've got to trust that, that, he, that our, our short-term solutions, as commonsensical as they look, are not long-term solutions. If you want to work your way into the kingdom of God and bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven, you do it a Jesus way, the non-commonsensical way, the way of the cross, the way of Calvary. Because the reality is that your life in all of world history is just a fraction of a second to a very, very long story. When this whole thing wraps up, I assure you, on the Easter morning of the cosmos, we will see perfectly how wise God was when he told us to turn the other cheek and to serve our enemies because that's, that, that is what will win in the end. Right now, we just kind of have to trust him, but that's what the kingdom is all about, putting all of our eggs in this basket even if it means that we die because even if we die, that's not bad news. That's just the first fraction of a second of a world that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. You know, I say this a lot and I mean it. I don't care if you vote, and if you do vote, I don't care who you vote for. I really don't. But, but if you're a kingdom person, here's what I care about. Don't trust. Don't put your trust and confidence in whoever it was you voted for. If your trust is in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Tea Party or the Socialist Party or the Communist Party or the Green Party or any party, I feel sorry for you because you're going to be living in fear, and you should be living in fear because those people don't know what they're doing. 
I don't. Uh, and God bless them. God bless you if, if, if that's where you're at. You mean well. You're doing the best you can. Bravo. But you're a finite human being and you're fallen. Why would I ever trust you? You're as dumb as I am. And I'm really dumb. You see, everyone's guessing. If your trust is in the White House or America or some other country or the Congress or the Senate or, or the governor or some other plan or program or some other military bombs or bullets, you're going to be afraid. And you should be afraid because no one knows what they're doing. They're guessing. Of course, they, they, they present themselves like they know what they're doing because otherwise you're not going to get elected. You get up there and you say, hey, you guys, I'm a human being, therefore I don't know what I'm doing. No one's going to vote for you. No, no, you, you got to say that other candidate doesn't like America, that other candidate is evil, bring about socialism. If you vote for them, well, then all your values are going to be undermined. you got to do that. Because people need to be afraid, and you're their security, or something like that. And you mean well. I'm not trying to bash all of that. But all of our, all of our eggs, all of our eggs, all of our chips have got to be in one basket, and that's Jesus Christ. The only one who knows what he's doing. Amen. And that means, that means... It means that we have to commit to following, living a Jesus way of life, no matter what. He could have called legions of angels, could have flexed his muscles, could have done uh, all sorts of, you know, Jesus kung fu on everybody and chopped them all up. (laughs) Instead, he chose to go the way of the cross. He trusted his father, the omniscient father, to know what is best. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It doesn't mean, does not mean... That we just sort of sit around and wait for the kingdom to come and don't do anything. To the opposite. No, contra, au contraire. To follow Jesus is to be a radical activist because Jesus was an activist. It means, it means that we, 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 we bring about God's will by the way we serve the poor, the way we feed the hungry, the way we, we clothe the naked, the way we intervene in hostile situations, the way we love the unlovable, the way, the, the way we sacrifice of our time and resources to benefit others. It's way different than having the right opinion about what government should do. What's unique about the kingdom is that we don't trust, put our eggs in what, what government's supposed to do about, about the poor, poverty, and, and, and other things. We just do it because we're followers of Jesus, and that's what we're called to do. No, it's, it's a radical activism. But we also need to have the humility to know that this isn't going to fix the world. The world ain't fixable. Not by human wisdom, no. no you know, God, God will, in the end, redeem it all. But our job is just to be faithful and to trust that God is Lord, sovereign God of all world's not going to end before he says it's supposed to end. You just trust him on that. And so we don't live out of fear. We relinquish control. We relinquish control and then live in peace. And this applies not just to global issues. I'll close with this. It applies to our everyday life. Everyday life. Because all of us walk around with stressors. Whether it's a job stressor, financial stressor, neighbor stressor, marriage stressor, relationship with kids stressor, relationship with in-laws stressor, uh, you know, whatever it is, there's stressors on us all the time, every one of us. Things that we can get anxious about. And if we're not careful, if our trust isn't in God moment by moment, then we begin to take matters into our own hands. We've got to do something. And our omniscience mechanism gets activated. And we start to try to control. We start to try to fix. And invariably, we do more harm than good. In fact, we can engage in violence because we're trying to fix the world or fix our spouse or fix our kids. And it may not be physical violence, but there's a lot of other kinds of violence. Like saying, what are you, stupid? That's, that's violence. That's, that's verbal violence. We get big, we get ragey. Someone's got to take control here. And so we try to fix people by just 
imposing our will on them. Or some Christians just get mad at the culture. We're going to impose our righteousness on people, pass these laws, and there's this anger that drives it. If we will just trust God, he's running the world, he alone is competent, and listen. So often we ask the question like, like the disciples did, but we don't wait for the answer. Why? Because they're afraid. Peter was afraid. And when you're afraid, you don't wait for an answer. You operate out of your own false sense of competency. No, if we can just peacefully surrender to God and listen, he'll give us wisdom about a Jesus way of handling the marriage issue, the kid issue, the job issue, whatever the issue may be. But it's going to be a gentle way, a Jesus way, a soft way. But we'll never get there unless we can trust God to quiet our hearts and to hear his voice. Fear is the all-time nullifier of hearing God and walking with God. And that fear is there because we're trying to be Lord of our own life, control our own destiny, refusing to surrender it all to God. Paul sums it up this way. And then we're going to move into a time of worship and communion here. Let your gentleness, the kingdom is always gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. He's here. Be at peace. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, okay, don't be anxious about anything. You don't need to have any fear. Not if you remember that this is a fraction of a second of eternity. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and then listen. And if you do that, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, love that verse, all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is the kingdom. So as we go into this time of worship, I want to call the ushers to come forward to take out this offering, and then I'll lead us in uh, the communion. Um, ask the Holy Spirit to maybe bring to your mind right now vividly one thing that you are stressed out about, marriage, finances, global warming, North Korea, whatever. And will you just hear, admit that you're not competent to handle this, because you're not. And realize that your stress and anger is because you're trying to be Lord over a situation when you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to be a servant in a situation, not Lord over the situation. And so get that in your mind, and as we enter in this time of worship, will you just hear, as an act of obedience, surrender it over to Him. It may, party may think it's foolish. That's your natural mind. Oh, this is foolish. If you don't do it, no one's going to do it, and then you're going to die. No, 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 just quiet that part and say, I will trust in God like Jesus did. I will trust. Surrender it over to Him, and then just... Breathe in. Open up your palms, surrender it, and breathe in the peace that comes from trusting God. Let the Lord still your heart so you can hear him. Have your way, Lord, as we now worship you. In the spirit of truth and the spirit of peace, in Jesus' name, amen.